This is The Guardian. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. Today, the life and times of Neda Manua. He's written a book called Kicking Back and it's good from a kid in Nigeria moving to the Northwest, getting into City's Academy to playing in the Premier League and ultimately realising his dream to becoming a panellist on Football Weekly. We talk about the moments being on the pitch for the Aguero game, the relationships with managers, Mancini, his teammates, Joey Barton, being at City when the money came in, dealing with racist abuse on international duty and on whether his five-a-side team really is as bad as Barry thinks it is. This is the Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Barry Glendening, welcome. Hello, Max. And important to have Neda Manua on this particular podcast. How are you, mate? Yeah, I'm good. It's not important to have me on to talk about my book. You could have had anyone else. So I appreciate yeah. you picking me. Were you reluctant to write it? I sort of get a sense of reluctance about sort of the whole affair. You haven't really tweeted about it. Like I tweeted yeah. about a million times about a live show in Birmingham we did yeah. last week. I think that's that's what kind of sums me up. I kind of like being very private, but then in the same breath, I've got a book out where if you pay a little bit of money, you can find out exactly who I am. You know, it's the, it's the paradox as such. But I was semi-reluctant to do it. But as I started doing it, it all started to make sense because I was looking at things differently. Say all the stuff I do in the media and I like, you're basically being asked to, you're being brought on to share insight so this is my own personal insight about my life and my career as we're relating it to things which are happening in real time. So I've been telling stories anyway, and I'd never really thought about it from that perspective. So when I was asked to do one, to do the book, not to do one, to do the book, <laughs> it was like, it, it made, um, it kind of made sense. And now that it's actually out there, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nice feeling, but then also pretty strange because I should be actively promoting it, but I don't actively promote anything. Because I've actively not promoted my life over the past, say, 10 years of the boom of social media, yet still here I am now trying to say, oh, but if you want to find out more about me, you know, there's a book out there. It's a strange feeling. You could sort of, you could make a, a Sky Sports Nedamanua Premier League years with this kind of, just reading it and like the moments that you happened to be there when <laughs> Pires and Henri, Pires and Henri did that penalty or when Phil Brown yeah, yeah. yelled at the whole players or yeah. Stuart Pierce bringing on David James and of course like the Aguero goal yeah. as well. I guess at the, at, when they're happening, you're not thinking, oh, this is a, no. this will be shown a million times. No, absolutely not. But then like all of a sudden they start racking up and say, okay, so that did happen and that happened and that happened. And then there was this, then there was that. And then even like being in the USA in 2020, that was a thing. You know, there's a lot of stuff that's happened being at QPR when, you know, the belief is we were on our way to the top. Little did we know we had no foundations to do that. But, you know, I was there for that as well. So 
yeah, there was a lot of things have happened. It's the same, like other players will say the same sort of thing, but I've been involved in some, in quite a few of those key moments. And as I, as you said, in the moment, you don't realize how significant a thing it is. Like when, as I say, Henri rolls his foot over the ball to try and give Perez a tap in or whatever, you don't, that doesn't feel significant. And bizarrely, David James playing up front in the moment didn't feel like it was that significant, even though it was a bit weird. <laughs> Yet still now you look back and say, like, yeah, that was that was pretty consequential. And as a consequence, you know, I've um I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed looking back. It's like a sort of quantum leap. Nedim and Noah's excellent adventure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And now I'm gonna take you to the point where there were two goalkeepers standing closer to goal than I was when we needed a goal. But yeah, let's not get into that too much. What was the dressing room like when when you came in and people are looking at Stuart Pearce, and you're not amazingly complimentary about Stuart Pearce in, yeah. in the book. When he's brought on David James up front, like you hear they've lost the dressing room. I'd feel that might be a moment where people are like, mm, I'm not sure about this guy. Yeah. Um, I think that one of the best things around that time for him was that myself and other people, we were so young that we didn't really have a say. So it just happened. And it's like, well, okay, I guess this is what it is. I dread to think what the more senior players were thinking in that moment, because if I was one of those and I saw that happen, they'd be highly confused. Like John Macken was on the bench um, and he was our record signer at the time. <laughs> so the actual person who could play up front and could score a goal, who had done it for quite a few years beforehand, was rejected so that David James could go up front. And with that game and that moment, you know, you've got all the information. Well, you think you've got all the information there, but then much long after you think you realize like he had to have the shirt printed before the game. So the plan was to always have a goalkeeper come on up front in the most important game of our season. Like that's, that's bonkers, but you don't, as I say, I was just happy because that was my first season. So I finished the season. I was like really happy. I've, I, maybe this is the start of my career instead of thinking like, did, did we really have two goalkeepers playing in the game at the same time? You know, that's, I've only seen that once and I hope to never see it again. Because in the book, you describe a situation which you've already referenced, where David James is up front, Nicky Weaver is sort of standing on the halfway line. It's a game against Middlesbrough, yeah. European qualifications on the line. And you sort of ask the bench, can I go up for a corner? And they're yeah. saying, no, no, stay back. It's just, no, 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 you, you stay back. Like, talk about a more humbling experience. There's more chance of these two goalkeepers scoring a goal than you. So you just make sure you stand on this halfway line and cover nothing. Every Middlesbrough player was back. And there I was just looking around like, what has happened here? Because two years earlier, I was a striker. And now like, I, couldn't, I don't think I could reach the goal from where I was standing, to be honest. Yeah, because you started as a striker. Like, Is that cliche true that you basically, everyone starts as a striker and then obviously you either stay as a striker and play it a level that I yeah. played as a striker <laughs> or like you just go further up and you go, actually, I've got to go further back because I'm not as good. Or is hey, it, hey, whoa, is, whoa, bit of respect, please. Bit of respect, well, please. Well, that's the question. I mean, is it, is, is it different? You just discover that maybe you're just better somewhere else. It's not that yeah. you're bad at one thing. Maybe you're just better at something else. But that, I mean, presumably that is true, right? Like, like you talk a lot about reading the game and actually yeah. something we don't really talk about. I think we touched on it in the last pod it's just like it's much easier to analyze a good tackle or, yeah, than, yeah. than just oh Cannavaro standing in the right place but you know is standing in the right place like the key part of being a centre-back <laughs> yes it makes it seem so simple but what I would say like there's an art to like blocking shots or being in the right place for a header reading the way somebody's going to play a ball understanding what they want to do 
So with some of those things, that's why being at the back is probably a bit better. Don't get me wrong. It's not the only way to defend because other people want to be as aggressive as possible, want to head it, want to kick it, want to be great at passing out, want to be doing diagonals, all that jazz. But the players who I found that attackers didn't enjoy playing against people who were like either overly physical or read the game well, because they always think that they've got you where they want you. Like, oh, I'm going to fake it. I'm going to fake this shot here and then go wherever. But then they fake the shot and you're still standing there. And now they're like, hmm, this is a problem because they want to see someone just like just slide across the field and be like completely out of the game. So yeah, in terms of the positional thing, yeah, I went back there from striker. But one thing I'd say, I don't hear many stories of people starting in midfield that end up at the back. I feel like midfielders just stay midfielders, but then it yeah, turns to be a lot, of, a lot of attackers that end up as defenders. Let's go back to the beginning then. I mean, you, you were five when you moved from Nigeria. Is that is that old enough to remember stuff? Like, I'm just trying to think. Tiny, tiny things, especially given the fact that, like, my uh, second child, she just turned five last week. So I'm thinking, I'm looking at it, I'm thinking, so that's how old I was when I came over here. I'm thinking, does she even remember what she had for breakfast this morning? I'm not sure. So um, I don't. I remember certain bits about the life over there, but it wasn't a lot. So to be honest, a lot of my memories begin, say, within the first couple of years after I arrive in England. But I do have pictures and stuff to remember from Nigeria. And you sort of give the impression that your upbringing wasn't particularly... I don't know if you underplay it, but you know, at the same time, your parents get a second-hand car and it's torched. Yeah. And that sounds that sounds rougher than my upbringing. Yeah. I'll be honest. You know, the Volvo never got done in the yeah. drive. Yeah, it was it was it was it was rough, and it's not necessarily that I underplay it. It's just a case of like at the time that's that was perceived as what normal was. You know, mm. we did we never experienced anything else in the country, so this is what it is, and it was a shame that you know there was so much crime and stuff going on and stuff which was happening against us, but like. We had no other English experience. Like, when you think about it, whatever you experience in any particular moment, you, you would you would assume that that's the norm. It's not this era where you can see different perspective and people talking about wherever. I knew nothing about, in the grand scheme of things, about the country because we didn't really travel it. I didn't even know about a different part of Manchester. This was basically where I was, and that's all that we knew. So it was it was tough. But then in the same breath, we were very much together as a family, and I think that was the key thing because that always felt like home, even though the surroundings were very different. And and your parents moved over to pursue. Well, your mum wanted to pursue her education yeah. as well as as yours, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's the reason essentially why why we ended up coming over. I think my mum came over a couple of years before we did, and then yeah, next thing we're all over there and we were living the Mancunian, very dry, great weather dream. You know, where every every season is fantastic. You know, the people at the time, you know, early 90s, Manchester, all very friendly to black foreigners. You know, everything was fantastic. Yeah. But no, seriously, she um, that was a big part of her life before she passed and big part of my father's life. And I think it's like it's the stereotypical Nigerian story whereby like your parents are well educated. So you have to be as well. And if you're not working hard 100 percent of what you're doing, there's very little chance you'd be seen outside of the streets. You'd be seen on the streets outside of school time. So um, yeah, that's 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 pretty much my side. And they had a kind of specific plan for each of the kids, right? One was be a lawyer. You were going to be a doctor. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the sad thing about being a doctor was all of all the science things that I did, I was like terrible at biology. I hated it. I just hated it with a passion. So yeah, this this pursuit that I was going for, I was like, ah, gosh, I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to pursue this thing I can't really do. But uh, thankfully, you know, a career got in the way, so I didn't have to pursue it too far. Did you want to be a doctor in Edinburgh or did no. they want you to be a doctor? No, they 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 know what they want you to be. That's the, as I say, that is the prototypical Nigerian upbringing. This is who we've decided. 
that these are the best career options for you guys? I think if if you can, if you're making a living and you can support yourself, then you've made it. But then reading your book, it's, you know, there's times, say, under Mancini, you, you were an outcast. You weren't playing, but you were going to training every day. You were picking up a decent wage. So does, you probably felt, you know, you're living the dream, but it's also a, an, a personal nightmare. Yeah. Um, what I would say in relation to that is I was more so referencing people who maybe when they get to 21, 22, they fall out of the game and they, you don't see them playing at all, even though they were hyped up. And at that point, some of those people are perceived to be failures, but the money they've made from when they turned 17 through to the 21, 22 means that the life that they'll lead from that point is far different to how it would have been if they never actually played as a pro, if you know what I mean. Let's talk about Mancini. You might as well brought him up. You don't particularly like him, Nedim. Well, <laughs> well, 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 well. And, and the feeling is mutual, I think. Well, exactly. But actually, no, let me, let me correct that. Okay. Back then, I hated him. Today, I'm, I'm going to say I'm indifferent, but more appreciative of how significant he was for the football club. Yeah? This is me trying to be correct now. Because I don't know, maybe he's changed. Some of the main people within the book maybe they've changed maybe it's unlikely but maybe they've changed so i'm giving them the benefit of the doubt but back then for as good a coach as he was in terms of getting the team to play exactly how he wanted he never really had the sort of like the skills to really know how to fully motivate people in any other way other than essentially fear and that there is probably one of the reasons why he didn't stay for as long as he possibly could have done given how significant he was for the football club and there was myself, there was myself and quite a few others. Like if, you, if you're playing week in, week out, then you can dislike the manager and it's like, at least I'm playing. That's always the key. Are you playing yes or no? If you're playing, well, the troubles aren't that, aren't as deep as others. But when you're not playing, when you're completely out of the loop and so on, that's a tough spot to be in because you spend a lot of time going to train, spend a lot of time traveling to games. And when you're not, you're not getting a game, you're not getting any connection with a management team, like your, multi, your morale's really, really low. He was very good as well for like earlier in the week, if there's a build-up to a Saturday game, like you'll split the teams in half, said so this is the starting team and then there's everybody else. And there's nothing worse than being part of the everybody else week in, week out. That's a, because they don't need to do that, but some managers are obsessed with that. But But he wasn't like, I just got the impression that he sort of basically wasn't honest with you and he sort yeah. of treated you badly. And and I, and I wonder if you feel, obviously managers are accountable because they can get sacked, but on a day-to-day basis, a yep. lot of your experience with managers are just like, they could just sort of do whatever they wanted and there was no kind of like, you could go to HR and go, this is my idea. <laughs> yeah. He's actually talking absolute shit to me. Yeah. There's nothing I can do. Yeah. And it doesn't, it's really bad for creating a good working environment. Yeah, it certainly is. And, you know, it was... It was it felt like at times I was, I felt like I was getting bullied at certain times because certain things were happening to me, which weren't happening to others. But in the same breath, like he's my boss. I like, who, as you said, who do I speak to? And at the same time, like when he came in at City, he was probably, the, he was the first manager that was brought in after the takeover happened. And the expectation level was now sky high. And a lot of the players that were there, they didn't have the sort of footing that they would have further down the line when they've played all those games for City and they have more of a standing and it can push back against the manager. Mancini basically had everyone, like, wherever he wanted them. Like, he could say to David Silva, listen, you're no good, you're not going to play. He could have said that in that moment. Could have said it to absolutely everyone, anyone rather. So, in the same breath, like, who am I? I'm the kid that came from the academy. 
and I'm disappointed to not be playing. But if he did, he wasn't bothered. He couldn't care any less if I if I was upset about something that was happening, and he carried himself in that manner. So he had all the power, all the leverage, and basically played up to it. But the most frustrating thing, though, was you knew what he was like on a day to day basis. You didn't love him, like players didn't love him, staff didn't really love him. They respected what he did for coaching or whatever. But then you'd see him on TV, and he'd turn the charm up to a hundred, and he comes <laughs> in with his scarf on, flicking his hair. He's dropping little jokes, little cheeky smiles, and like, oh wow. I'm living my nightmare here because you know the next time you'll see him, you'll get none of that whatsoever. And that's when there's like that break where manager is essentially two different people. And then as a consequence, as a player, because I felt this as well for the line of like Harry Redknapp and stuff. And again, Harry was must have been good at some point, but at the opening part of QPR, I don't think he was really the person I thought he was going to be. But when reporters and stuff really like someone, they'd be like, oh, it must be great to have somebody like manager X at your club because of their experiences and how good they are. And then you as a player, you're either going to say yes or no. And at that point, you can't really say no. So before you know it, the, the legend <laughs> continues. Oh, it's this fantastic. Yeah, they've done so, so well. You say the same about Stuart Pearce. I mean, I've worked with Pearce. I really like Stuart Pearce. He's really good values, great fun. Yeah. Like maybe I get that side, you know, that side. But your yeah. experience your experience was just not that. At, at City and at England. Yeah. And and the annoying thing is like the the... Stuart Pearce basically started my career. I had a couple of games for Kevin Keegan, but Stuart Pearce started it. And then for the 21, Stuart Pearce kind of started it as well, where I was playing more. So I've got those like initial highs, everything's great. But then some of those endings and some of the moments within it, I look back and I think this is insane. And it's some ways like, it's, in some ways like, I should say it doesn't matter, but it really matters to me. Like being taken off at half time in the last game I can play for the under 21s against Germany in the European Championship final in a tournament where I was supposed to be captain. Like, what are you doing? And he and he did it. I don't know why he did it. I still don't know why he did it to this day. Like he brought on Michael Mancia, and he's a friend of mine, good player, but he had another two-year two year cycle to be able to play in the thing. Like, I'm the senior player within here. Just for clarity, we were 1-0 down at halftime. Just for clarity, the game finished 4-0. You make it that whatever <laughs> you want to say. But I remember just being stunned. And he, there were a few things where he just left me stunned looking back. And I couldn't, get over it because I was I was heartbroken that was my last game and I think as a player as a person when you're really looking forward to something and you know the real sort of like consequence of it for it to sort of be taken out of your own control like that it's uh it was heartbreaking and yeah I've, I've, I've probably seen him a couple of times since then but I just try and ignore him because I just I'm still I'm still not over it I can't let it go it's a long time ago but I can't let it go but the thing is Nedim that generally no one really cares about the under 21s or how they do or if they win something or not i just find it quite funny that you're still seething over oh, this I can't and sure appears probably as you say it doesn't even remember that that's one thing i discovered over time is that whenever you're in a bad situation at a football club and you're thinking this feels very tactical against me why is this happening why is that happening i remember someone told me like they're not thinking about you for a single second so the more you think the more you'll get into your own head but um but like i say it's so when I was like, a manager has to look after 20 players, you know, deal with 20, 30 staff. They're like reporting to owners and all sorts. So like what they say to this individual doesn't really matter in their mind. But to the individual, it's like everything. Like that was, that was potentially one of the biggest games I ever played in. And the 21s per se doesn't feel like it matters as much as the national team because it's a feeder to that. But I look back and like I say, that Germany team had six or seven players who were winning World Cups further down the line. 
and they were vaulted into the national team like a year after that. Now we're talking about Manuel Neuer, we're talking Jerome Boateng, Sami Kadiras, Mesut Ozil's people like that. So that that was a very significant crop. And I feel like if things were a bit better, maybe our crop could have done better as well. Not to say we did badly, but maybe we could have had more as well. Do you, I think you get uh, Joe Hart and Michael Richards to sort of have a chat at the to write your forward. And I think Micah says, you know, that, that you might regret, you know, parts of your career or the fact that it didn't necessarily reach the absolute pinnacle. How much time do you spend thinking about that? Or do you not think about that now? Uh, very little, very, very little. Right. I think um, at the, well, as my career was going on, in the, early, in the first few years of my career, I spent a bit of time injured and I was like a prospect, all that stuff. Spent a bit of time injured, then I spent a bit of time like being the next in. So I was behind Richard Dunn, Silva and Distan. I was the next in. So other people maybe take a more aggressive tone and say, I need to be somewhere, I need to play. But because I was at City, it's like, I'm, I'm all right. I'll be the next in. But then with timing, with the takeover, with say the rise of Micah as well, because it was uh, there was a point where it was myself or him, and you know, Micah was like the youngest ever defender to play for England at the time. So spent a bit of time sitting on the bench, a bit of time on the sidelines. And it could have been whatever it could have been. But then even with QPR, I signed for Queen's Park Rangers when they were in the Premier League. And that's why I signed, because they were in the Premier League. But then that led me to the championship. And the championship is one of the hardest leagues to get out of as an individual, if you're not in the right spot or the right age. Before you know, I was very much in that system to the point where my last season in 2018, I think I was 31, 30, yeah, 31 years of age. And I just won player of the season. And I was a free agent. So I was like, ah, this will be fantastic. Nothing, like literally nothing whatsoever. And you realize like- Like nothing? Nothing, there was nothing. There was no interest. Like I was on holiday. I was like, this holiday is going on a bit too long without any real like, <laughs> it was really calling me. This is weird. And like I said, I was player of the year. So I thought I'm doing well here. So yeah, that's just, you, you realize very quickly what football is like. And it's not necessarily personal against you. It's just the way that it is. I remember, I think it was Sam Allardyce when he was at West Ham, I believe. My agent had spoken to them saying, like, would, would they potentially be interested in bringing me over? And they said, this is when I was 28. They said, no, he's too old. He's at 28. And I thought, well, if this is where we're at, then, you know, who am I to tell them otherwise? You can, you can podcast for many more years. I think it's important to say, Nedim. Um, uh, look, that'll do for part one. Uh, part two, I'll ask you, my first question in part two will be about Joey Barton. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST.
Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly, uh, the life and times of Neda Manua. Actually, Neda, you write at, right at the top of your book, you talk about how to pronounce your name. And we had this discussion on air. Yeah. And now I'm convinced I still don't do it correctly. Like you told me how to do it. Yeah, that's and right. Then I, yeah. And then I still don't do it correctly. That's Is right. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. Yeah. Because I, cause I've, I've sort of dropped one of the vowels out of it. Yeah, but then it's also like you call me Nedim instead of Nadem. But, you know, this part two is fine. I've, I've corrected, you know. Well, no, two. but I mean, it's, it's, it seems important since you write about identity. Yeah. We'll talk about that in a bit. Because that, that, you sort of got to the stage where you don't, maybe you care, but it's just you're past caring because no one ever gets it right. Yeah. Um, it's, not that, it's not that I'm past caring because it does matter. But then in the same breath, it's all about intent. If somebody wants to try and get it right, then I appreciate that more than somebody who decides that they're not bothered about what it should be. You know, as in, it's almost like for some people, it's like they've seen a word in a publication or something which they don't know how to say so they just move on from it but it's just that's just a word but this is my name you know so the way you talk about it matters like someone I was at a supporters club event yesterday in Hale and they said one of the first times they saw me was in a pre-season game I think it was oh no it's like a in-season game and it was a friendly between City and like Altringham I think it was and he said, I'll never forget because the announcer was running through all the names. And then he looked at my name and the announcer said, oh, I don't really know how to say this. So I'm just going to spell it. So he just spelled my name out over the tannoy. And you think, well, that, that's a bit weird, isn't it? That's a, that's, we've got to say that's a bit weird. But yeah, you're trying your best. Your intent is there. And my example is Ailey Barber, for example. I've worked with her. And I remember the first time I saw her name, I had no idea how I was supposed to say that. But now I know that's Ailey. And I would try and make sure I say Ailey every single time instead of Elid or something like that. Or like, we all know how to, how to say Siobhan, but then you write it down, it's clearly a Saiban. You know what I mean? There's this, this stuff like that. If, you, if it matters, you'll figure it out. So, so can we just for, just for clarity and probably just for me, you know, when you just say Google pronunciation yeah. of a word, can you like, okay, Nadim I've got, but your surname? Onuaha. You basically Onuaha. Split, Onuaha. It, split it in the middle. Right. There's O-N-U and there's O-H-A. On Nuaha. Yeah, there you go. Right. Now, look, uh, we talk, you, were, you were on the pitch for that Aguero game, right? Yeah. You you didn't know that Aguero had scored. You just no. thought QPR no. were you down. You did provide you... the assist, however. Hey, well, well. <laughs> well let's, let's, listen, my United Conspiracy Twitter is listening to this, and you've got to be very careful with what you say. I did not provide the assist, but I did have a turnover. Let's call it, let's, let's put it that way. Right, okay. Uh, look, but in that game, obviously, Joey Barton got sent off, and there's quite a lot in the book about Joey because you were there when a lot of things happened yep. training ground incidents yep. etc how do you look back on h- him him I guess. Uh, yeah so just just in case anyone's curious like the book isn't basically just me just airing my grievances about all these people there is a sense of balance because I, I do talk about the fact that he was a good player I do talk about the fact Stuart Pierce brought me into the side you know that stuff it's very true are you accusing us of sort of click? No, 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 no. It's just, I just, I, I could picture, I could just imagine how some people would be listening to it because it's not like, it's, I do like, I don't know Joey Barton today. So again, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. He could be different, but I knew him for a lot of years and I didn't like playing with him. And it's not because he wasn't a good player because he was a good player. He was always one of the better players on whichever team I played on with him but his personality was never one which sort of brought everybody together. And in fact, it was the exact opposite. Well, in fact, it did bring people together, but a lot of times it brought people together against him. <laughs> that's that's the thing he didn't quite understand because he, he had a ton of really, really strong opinions, really strong beliefs, but he would never move on from them. And he was adamant this is the only way it had to be. Like to talk about 
um, it was a preseason in Ireland. And I remember Harry Redknapp had us all gathered around as a team, said we're going to play this 3-4-3 formation or whatever it was. And so that whatever the manager says, that's it. If he says you're going to balance on your left foot for 90 minutes, you'd be thinking it's a bit crazy, but you just do it because that's your job. And Joey's just like saying, no, it's not going to work in front of everyone in the first week of preseason and then proceeded to sabotage it for a week, two weeks whilst doing it. That's who he was. And that's because his opinion was that he was wrong. But as a player, like you're not there to create strategy as such. You can do things within a game, but the manager picks the team, picks the formation, picks how he wants you to play. And then you work off work off that. But for him, it was always the opposite. And if he didn't like a player, it's bad news for that player. If he didn't like a manager, it's bad news for that manager. There were a couple of times where he's tried to get managers sacked and the like. And I just look back and I think, like, why? Why Why be like this? Why be... He, he didn't care that certain people didn't like him and he always had a lot of leverage. But it was, it was a shame because I think there would be quite a few players who were younger who maybe could have thrived earlier if he would have been more open to them. Like the, the, the contrast was with Sean Knight Phillips at City, he was the most welcoming like ex-academy graduate you've probably ever seen. Whereas at the same time, Joey was kicking people in the head in training. And you think, well, one's not very nice. The other guy's, you know, probably one of the big reasons why people were able to thrive in that moment. And it's, and it's crazy. There were, there were a few moments where, you know, he's crossed the line and are like, but at the end of the day as a player, like how much leverage do you have to be able to deal with it yourself? You know, at that point, that's when this is the link now to Stuart Pearce. I think if Stuart Pierce was stronger with him from early, earlier on in his career, I think Joey we would have been a different person through those times. So, so I mean, is not that sort of an inherent real problem with football that the more important you are to the team, the more you can get away with, and that the rules are just totally inconsistent across squad, across team, you know, wherever you go. I think it can be, but one thing I saw over the years was some of the better players were also really good professionals, and they were thinking more about the team as opposed to themselves because then it makes the job easy for the manager because anytime somebody that has power and leverage wants to sort of do things for themselves, then the other players will start to see the double standard. And once that arrives, like you can't, you can't win the players back from the moment they know that they're treating other people, some people differently to others. And it's the, I'm sure it's the same with like other workplaces, Like you can't bring it back. You, you, you are then doing your job, but you're kind of unhappy because you know someone else can get away with whatever they want and do it. And that's when you hope that the person with the leverage is trying to bring everybody on board. Because I've seen both sides of it. I've seen people who would literally have power and as a consequence want to try and get themselves to do as few training sessions as possible. Then you've seen other people who get told that they should have a day off, but they say, no, I want to be with the team. And I think the ones who you want to be with the team with are the ones who you will literally run through a brick wall for, who you want to play with, who you want to spend time with because you know they've got they've got your best interests at heart. And I think at times for him, he wasn't really that at all. And he was the exact opposite. What was it like when all the money came into City? Well, there were two stages of it because there was the Shinawatra money the year before. And even though they, didn't, they don't have the wealth to say this, this City ownership group now, it was different. Like we were, we were City with Stuart Pearce, then also we were City with Sven Goran Eriksson as manager. And like we were playing nice football. We had like a number 10 in Alana. I was like, what is this? This is... <laughs> This is simply spectacular, isn't it? You know, this Italian sort of style as well, where they're bringing people over from there. And it was um, it was cool. It was exciting. It was really exciting because we'd faced, I think that season before, we'd not scored a goal at home for four months or something. And now here we are with people like playing. I remember Alano played like 40-yard toe-poke diagonal balls and stuff like this. I've never seen this before. This is insane. But that fell through. And then the new ownership group came in. And then, in fairness to them, 
the changes that they were making, like they were looking to break change stuff straight away. But they, apart from Robinho, most of the other signings made sense for the moment because the next year after they come in, you're bringing in like Johnny Lescott's, Colo Torres, people like that, Gareth Barry's, then the next year it's this guy, that guy, that guy, and so on. But they changed a lot of the infrastructure. From the moment they came in, they started to make plans for a new training ground. But with the old training ground that they had, I'll never forget. Uh, there was an international break and I wasn't going away at the time. We played a game on a Saturday. I came in on the Sunday and they started doing some works to the training ground. And then by the time the other players came back, the training ground gym space was now too flawed with all the equipment that you could ever imagine. Really structured and really nice. So I thought, I wonder what this looks like to the people who literally went away and came <laughs> back. They've arrived at a whole new destination. But that's kind of who they um, who they were. They were a lot more... They knew that the stuff on the field mattered, but they knew that they needed to match it off the field as well to create a foundation for them to be able to be successful potentially long-term. Instead of, say, like uh, when I was at QPR, there was heavy investment on the field, but you could go there now and you probably won't see a lot of evidence that we were in the Premier League for three seasons. So, uh, yeah, there's that part. You say it's exciting, Nathan, but is a part of you thinking, oh, I'm an academy graduate here, my my days are numbered? Yeah. Um, not necessarily in that simplistic a form, but I was young enough to still be reading newspapers and seeing reports online. I think that was like the rise of like 24-hour news media and sports news media as well. So if your club was linked with anybody, you saw it, and then you're like, oh, that's another centre-back. Oh, God, that's another right-back. Oh, this, oh, he's pretty good, oh, and they can afford him. But for City at that time, they couldn't draw the biggest names in because they were too early along in what they wanted to try and achieve. But the names that were being looked at were different to the one like, I remember we brought in Hatem Trebelzi from Ajax under Stuart Pearce. And he was like a significant player for Ajax five years earlier. But when he came to City, he's like, his feet were sore. He couldn't really run properly. But now, <laughs> but then now it's like the people who they're looking at are people who've got some really, really good years ahead of them. And I wasn't, I wasn't worried as such because you could read stuff, but until somebody was there, what difference did it make? And then when they started bringing people in, the competition got higher. But I always still, I was still very much a part of the squad anyway, and I was still playing every so often, and I'd always finish the season. So there was a level of concern. But ironically, the most games I played for City in a season, and my best season for City was the season after they were taken over in August of 2008, I think it was. And that's when we were playing in Europe as well. So just goes to show, like, you can believe one thing's going to happen, but come the end of it, I was in a different spot altogether. Did anybody at all, and it's not that long ago, but it feels like a different time, did anybody question where the money was coming from? Uh, no, no, not at all. It just, like, for us in that time, it just happened. I think the world itself now, in a sort of wider way is more sort of conscious of everything because you can find out whatever you want to find out, you know, at this stage now. But back then I was, I remember like, I'm looking, looking at the sofa right now where I was sitting and I saw the city had been taken over with San Rubinho. And it's like, Oh, okay. So I'm going to training ground tomorrow. I was like, okay, this is, this is who we are. And I think that's, that's something that, you know, you look at the Newcastle, takeover and how long that's taken and all the time you've had to be able to gain a true opinion of it like for City for most of the stakeholders involved in City it just happened and then you're seeing a change happen with your football club and you're seeing a positive change happen with your football club who was in a position whereby like Shinawatra the previous owner 
his assets were frozen. He wasn't going to be allowed back to this place and so on and so forth. And again, it's that sense of relief that you're in a, you, things are getting better and now you're just trying to look up the league instead of panicking about teams right behind you might drag you into a situation you don't want to be in. What a veteran sofa. That yeah, delicious. <laughs> Year old so and actually that's interesting because you make a point you sort of made a point as a player of not being materialistic. Nah. Not you know, not nah. buying fancy cars or going to Ibiza or whatever. That's a very generous way of saying I'm quite tight. Yeah, that's <laughs> very generous. I'm quite well, to be fair, I'm not tight. I spend money on experiences, items themselves, not really too bothered about. But when I look back and think of say that time when I was in the Maldives or that time when I was in Antigua or that time where I was in Sydney or Adelaide or all that, like that means more to me than say whatever I look like in any particular moment. And I'd rather look at pictures of me and say, oh, my clothing looks a bit messy, but I like the backdrop because it's somewhere really nice because that's a, that's a bigger memory for me. So I didn't spend a ton of money on things. I'd spend a little bit on cars, kind of. But overall, like, I just wasn't... It sounds boring, but I'm just distinctly just unbothered by stuff. And I, and I know to this day, like, I feel like, oh, I really want something. I really want something. And I'm like, why do I really want it? And then you look around, it's because everyone else has got it. And even to talk about tightness again, I've had my current uh, phone uh, for the last, for three years. And I think I need to replace it, I need to replace it. So I went onto the uh, Apple website to line up the new phone. And I picked it up and it said it was like 1,100 pounds. I said, well, you know, three years turns into four very quickly. I've got no issues with that. You know what I mean? So I have, I have money, but I just don't, I'm just not bothered. If it's working, it's working. Can I ask about um, sort of your experiences with with racism? When you moved over, you sort of touch on it. I don't know how much you experienced as a, as a kid. Yeah, obviously on the pitch you experienced it for the first time um, from Serbian fans, and you talk later in the book about sort of being racially profiled, right? People crossing the road yeah, yeah. when they see you because you're a quote six foot two black man, and you know getting stopped when you're driving a not really flashy yeah, but quite yeah. nice car when other when other players aren't. Yeah, what what is your sort of experience? Been things have changed across the years, but I think for the places that I've lived in Manchester, those areas have become more diverse. So at the start, like we were the only real black family in that area, so we were treated as such, and you know that wasn't a positive because they're seeing us for the first time and they're saying, "Oh, they're this, they're that," and you know things were being said, things were happening to us, which were happening to only us and not other people. Then through the playing side of things, I was actually. Uh, in the academy I think we're playing in Italy and when you we play in these tournaments a lot of people they don't speak English but there's one word there's one word that this guy knew or oh, two words actually so he said effing n-word and I was like but I couldn't have a conversation with him about it that's just all he knew and I thought why is that all you know you know he's taking time to make sure that he knows those two words to be able to deliver I thought that's weird so been to a few places seen swastikas and I like and then from the profiling standpoint I, I I could be wrong here. I could be wrong. I hold my hands up. But I think I'm a good person. I think I'm a nice guy. I think I'm not like crawling the streets trying to just like attack people or whatever. So when I'm, also being from the North, when I'm walking around, if I see someone, I'll try and say hello. But it means you have to find the eye contact with somebody. And if somebody thinks that you're bad news and you're looking up trying to make eye contact, that kind of terrifies them. So I have to sort of carry myself in a different manner because for lots of people, like they don't have experiences with, different types of people so a lot of those so a lot of their perceptions come from how people are portrayed and for black people and other things like that the portrayals tended to be for sport or crime 
you know, that's what you'd see on the TV more than anything. So then when they meet somebody for the first time, it's like, is he wearing a shirt and shin pads and he's got his boots on? Or is he likely to be somebody who's involved in something which I don't want to be a part of? So there definitely is that part. And it's a, it's a shame. It is a big shame. And I also feel the weight that if you're in a position whereby there aren't tons of black people, lots of diversity, like the impact you have on that particular group will go a long way towards helping other people. And that's a lot of pressure to have when you just want to relax and just be yourself. But unfortunately, sometimes you can't be because you're trying to do something for the benefit of others. Nadim, I just want to touch on you. You were obviously very close to your mum, as as many of us are. And when she had uh, cancer, there was the, the story that Gary Cook, who was chief exec of Man City at the time, mocked her illness and in an yeah. email, which he sent to her by mistake. And yep. then denied it, and subsequently fessed up when it was clear he he it was obviously him. Yeah, how, how angry did that make you? Um, in the moment, I was I was upset, I was frustrated, but I wasn't as angry as say my mom and dad were. First, I didn't have all the information because I didn't know at the time. Like my parents were shielding from us as as kids that like the cancer was actually terminal, and she'd been given I think it was about a year left, year to live. And also the stupidness of thinking, well, I'm a Man City player, I'm loyal, I support the team, I don't want to cause too much of a stir. Like that happening in the last years of my career, I'm not just angry if that's me, I'm angry if that's one of my teammates, I'm angry if that's one of the staff, like I'm going to war in trying to deal with that. And it just, I don't know, it just it just shows so much because again, with the denial, like at the bottom of the email, it says like sent from my iPad or my iPhone or whatever, like, and he's saying he never sent it. So it just shows people who have power, they think they can get away with anything. And that sort of thing is, is horrendous. And as I say, looking back, I wish I would have reacted in a stronger manner because I'm not having a single bit of that today. But unfortunately in that time, I didn't feel like I could have said or done any more. And I didn't have all the information and I wish that I did because as I say, I'd have gone to war. I'd go to war for that today for anyone. Yet still back then, I didn't really do it for myself. Have you had any contact with... Nah. Like the Gary Cook or Brian Marwood? I've, I've, seen, I've seen Brian Marwood. I saw him at a, a charity golf event last year and it was very surreal seeing him walk over. And he was just smiling, like, oh, how are you doing? And I was like, ah. because I think I say in the book, um, because of the way I reacted back then, it's very hard for me to react in a bigger manner now as time has passed and a lot's gone on. So I've almost had to accept that, you know, I have to be because we we both semi work for City. Well, he would he obviously works for City, but I do some work for City, so I have to be cordial, I have to be respectful. But deep down, like I hate what him and Gary Cook felt they could do in relation to something that greatly affected me. But I can't make a big deal of it now just because the window's basically closed. Yeah, I said sort of really moving part of the book actually, and I don't know about you, Barry, when you see it in print. It's bad, isn't it? I was, I was fucking incensed. Yeah. And like, it's nothing to do with me. You know, I don't know what you think, Barry. It's just, I mean, Nadam says in the book that he, he wasn't as, or as he is, and as he has just explained, he wasn't as angry at the time as he should have been. And it was an extraordinary episode, like just absolutely extraordinary. But I've kept the emails on my phone. So even though I didn't have the rage that, sort of I had in the time like it's there as a as a reminder that that actually happened and you know you said at the right the start max I've been involved in some significant things like that's also insane like people joking about 
a terminal illness that somebody has who have that sort of power. Like it's, it's this, I see I'm, I'm getting like, I'm getting angry now. And I'm thinking this was, this well, was no, rightly like, so yeah. it's disgusting. Yeah. And, and I think my mom passed the year after, you know, and that's when I start to find out that like everybody who was of the generation above us knew that her diagnosis was terminal. Cause I always, every day I had the belief that she'd be fine. But everyone else knew that she wouldn't. So it's, yeah, it does. It does make my blood boil just a little bit to be fair. And especially, like, you know, I'm not, it's not Piers Morgan's life story. I'm not trying to make you cry, but when you sort of think about the sacrifices that she made yeah. for you and for your career, for it to be so related to football and her trying to fight for your money, that's where the email came across. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And she's trying to fight for her son to make sure that what happens is right and not unfair. You know, sticking up for me in a time when I wouldn't even stick up for myself. That's very much who she who she was and yeah it's, it's sad because as well with her passing it's, it's, it's coming up to 10 years like my career split in half because I used to speak to her every single day about life about football and so on especially while she was she was ill and then that second half of my career like it that's when it turned into work I just I'd go to work arrive do work go home because I wasn't sharing those same experiences as I was with the person who'd been there for every single ball that I'd kicked basically so it was um yeah, it was a, it was a very very significant point for me. I'd say that, and my uh, first child being born two years later, because then you realise like you can just go home and just notice that people are smiling at you, regardless of the result, whether you've done well, done badly, or done anything. You know, they just they don't care about that. The bigger thing is just seeing their uh, seeing the loved one there. All right, that'll do for part two. Back in a tick. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Um, we're halfway through a live tour. We're recording this before the Birmingham show, Barry. How many people do you think went to the Birmingham show? I think we had a late surge in ticket sales and we, we pulled in about at least a thousand. Uh, I should hope so, which will be tricky in a 800 capacity arena, but you never know. Uh, Dublin, Tuesday the 4th and 5th of July, pretty much sold out for those. Uh, 8th of July in Hackney, Troy Townsend, Jonathan Wilson, Nicky Bandini. Uh, Hackney Empire on the 9th of July with Ellis James, Barney Ronay and Sid Lowe. And in Glasgow on the 13th of July, Philippe Auclair and Jonathan Wilson. Uh, there's going to be merch available as well on tour and online. A scarf, a t-shirt, mugs as well. Uh, for the tickets for the show, go to myticket.co.uk. Just some random little things that came out of the book that I sort of found quite funny or interesting. Like Sean Derry and Fitzhall making themselves sick before every football match. Yeah, that's... Is, that, yeah, blew, that, yeah, that blew my mind. But like, again, as I got older, I was like, I get it. Because some people want to feel really light when they go out there. But then you think, well, why were you eating beforehand? You know what I mean? But there's, like, I mean, there's another way to get things out of your body. Yeah, <laughs> but it's just, you'd hear it like, we're, we're just about to do a team talk and you hear that. Bleh, bleh. I'm like, what's going on here? I was like, oh, it's happening again. Oh, because it's these two. 
And in fairness, they were good players, so clearly it worked for them. But it is a I always find that really, really strange. And I think for the for the layout of that uh, changing room as well, he's basically happening about six feet away from the manager. He was trying to tell you like this is the most important game in the history of the world. Someone's just spewing on the side, but uh, it's each of their own. Another thing, Danny, I wonder is how much you owe your career to Danny Mills. It seems to be every time you got an opportunity at the start of the career, it was because he was suspended. Yeah, that's, that was very, very generous of him. And obviously, he was very much looking out for me every time he went in for one of those tackles and so on. Yeah. Now, he's. You see, when Danny Mills first came in, I'll be honest with you, like I'd seen him play for England at the World he Cup. He had a good World um, Cup, didn't he? In South Korea and Japan, I think it was. I think he'd, he'd, he'd done. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, us signing him was like a significant thing. Um, and he came in and other people from early doors, he didn't play that well for City and early doors. Some people were like trying to say, oh, he's not very good. He's not this, he's not that. But I was like, no, he's, he's good. He's good. He'll come good. He'll come good. He'll come good. In the grand scheme of things, that City probably never really came good. And there must be tons of reasons for it. But I, like, I had the belief that he'd snap out of it. But then in the same breath, I was more than happy to be playing when he wasn't playing. And then come the end of that season, 03, 04. Here we are, like trying to qualify for the UEFA Cup. That was really exciting for an opening. That opening season, I played at Highbury against Prime Arsenal, and then I played in a game to try and qualify for the UEFA Cup after finishing the last nine games of the season. That was so exciting, such a good time. And uh, yeah, I've got to thank Danny Mills for that because you know he just gave me the chance to be who I was going to be long term. And you cared about player ratings in newspapers. That oh, sort of surprised yeah. me. Well, you, you say this, you say this, but the thing about player ratings, they, they affect you from before you even started, play, started playing professionally. Because when we used to do the Youth Cup, we used to get player ratings as well. I think this is back when local newspapers were massive. They were basically like the main talking points. They provide the main talking points and the main sort of feel about the team. So the Manchester Evening News, they would always be doing them. And you say, oh, this guy was great today. This guy was bad today. And nobody likes being told by that sort of gatekeeper of a newspaper at the time that you played badly, especially if you played well. Because a lot of people that we see, they don't watch a lot of football, but they see a lot of reviews about football and about players. And they think that they have an idea about players and how things have gone. And when you're creating your reputation, you don't want to be on the back foot from the get-go because people come up to you and say, oh, you weren't very good at the weekend, but they never watched it. But they saw you got four on the evening news. So that did matter. And it was, like I say, in the Youth Cup times, They'd be hinting at who they believe could be a good player for the first team based on what your ratings were. So it, it did matter because that was the main thing. As I got older, I couldn't care. I could not care less. But in the time, it feels like everything. Do players, how do players, and you can't generalise, I guess, I'm thinking about how the England players, so we're recording this the day after Hungary won 4-0, and England, who this, basically the squad, and okay, it was some changes last night, got to the semi-final of the World Cup, final of the Euros. How they're sitting in the dressing room, what they're thinking about those fans singing, you know, you don't know what you're doing and you're not fit to wear the shirt and all this stuff. Because if I was an England player, I'd be just thinking, why don't they just fuck off? <laughs> Is what I would be thinking. <laughs> Do you know what? That, that's, that's a fair thing to think, but you don't have the evidence to push back against it because those events that you've mentioned, they're all very historical. Like the Euros like a year ago, it seems like a lot's changed in that time. The World Cup four years ago, feels like a long time ago. You've just lost 4-0. Like those England players, they don't really lose that many games. And they don't lose that many games by four. And they don't lose that many games by four against a team that they'll believe that they should have beaten by four, especially at home. So they'll be, they would have been frustrated by the result and embarrassed by the reaction of the fans as well. And, as, and because it's this era, you know, they don't care about player ratings as such. 
but they know what all the media talking points are going to be. And they're going to be getting blasted for the next two, three weeks, even whilst they're on holiday. Twitter will be going off. Instagram will be going off. There's no way you'll be able to escape that game. And for them, like, who really wants to go through that? So do players like, do players hate fans? Uh, that's a big, big statement. Feels like very talk sporty or whatever, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry. I didn't mean it like that. No, I'm joking. Uh, do they hate fans? No, they don't hate fans, but they like knowledgeable supporters. You know, when somebody can really go into a game and get a feel for what's actually going on, as opposed to just arriving and saying, automatically, we're going to win this game. Like, there's an appreciation that... This England team, they lost this game, but they're not a bad side. But then there are other people who say they're a bad side because they lost this game. You know, if you can have a, as is the case with most things you do media-wise, if you can have a reasonable conversation with a reasonable person, then you can get to a reasonable outcome. But the whole summer collection hasn't been good, but it's not the end of the world, yet still lots of people will tell you, this is it now, everything's over. Destroy the team, start over. I find it so infuriating. Um, You played your as yourself on FIFA. Yeah, of course. Why, why would you not? Slightly narcissistic. No, 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 no. It's, it's very standard, actually. It's very Is powerful, it? of course, my friend. That It was that and Championship Manager. Championship Manager, I was elite on there. And I started as a striker as well. People would come up to me and say, oh, four years in, you're like top scorer in the Premier League. I'm like, yep, I know, I know, I know. No but you know it's there. not you. Well, you say it's not me, but right. if it says my name, then surely that means that it's me. You know, I remember someone... Did they spell your name right? Well, they spelt it right. And I'm going to say they got my uh, attributes right as well, since I was top scorer in the Premier League with Charlton four years after the game started. But yeah, it was, uh, it's, it's fun. Like that's when you realise that you're kind of involved in pro football when your name starts appearing in games which are dictated to pro football. So, so yeah, that's, that's definitely where the fun kicks in. When you went to Salt Lake, the only knowledge you had of... Salt Lake City was the Book of Mormon. <laughs> it wasn't that. It was the uh, it was the Winter Olympics. Oh right, okay. I knew I knew that the Winter Olympics, but yeah, the Book of Mormon was definitely a thing. And it's one of those things you just don't Google, don't search. You never know much about. And then I, when I was linked, when I thought, oh, maybe I'll be going here, I thought, let me look into this. I was like, ah, okay, this is an actual place. This is an actual thing. This is a place to live. And then when I got there, it was. I remember that as the plane was landing and I saw the mountains and the views and it was like 30, 35 degrees, lakes here. I thought, this is mega because I'm literally in an urban jungle that is Manchester. And I saw this and I thought, this is fantastic. And I ended up being that way with that view for the two and a half years I was there. It was absolutely incredible. What do you want to do with your life, Nadam? Where do you want to be in five years' time? Now. Are you happy yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely ecstatic. This is a very open question, obviously. Uh, I'd, I'd like to think I'd have a different sofa to the one which I sat on when City were first taken over. New phone. Yeah, well, I don't know. I'm not concerned about the phone. Depends how the prices go. Um, but I think I'm enjoying doing uh, media part-time whilst also being able to sort of make the most of wherever I want to be on a day-to-day basis with my family, with my wife, by myself. And some of that comes from the privilege of having made enough money and looked after enough money during my career to be set up for a prolonged period of time without having to work. So now I have that privilege. I'm going to make the most of it because football's fun, but it's more fun when I just play it socially on a, on a Wednesday as opposed to having to be involved in the sort of ebb and flow of a season and constantly have to talk or play about all those games that, in the grand scheme of things. Is it more fun? Is it more? Is a seven aside on like Astro on 4G, more fun than the Premier League. Yeah, yeah, because your body always feels better when you start it because you haven't had the backlog <laughs> of work. And then once you're done, it's like you go home and you just move on from it. Whereas with pro football, 
Like those England players, you think that game from yesterday is done? Absolutely not. That will be discussed arguably for years to come. You say that we played our old boys game on Saturday and we're still talking about games that were played 10 years ago that nobody watched. Well, there you go. Yeah, uh, well, look, um, you should you should tweet about the book, Nenem, because it's because it's good. <laughs> and, uh, you yeah, know. I know. Listen, I know. I know. I should. I know. I should. So what I did, I like put a link to it in my bio. I thought that's that that's like that's genuine promotion, that isn't it? Should be your pinned tweet as well, shouldn't it? <sighs> All right. How about you, if you draft one for me and send it over, I'll 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 do it and I'll say thank you to Max for uh, saving the day. <laughs> Okay, yeah. It'll say, say something like... Yeah, exactly. That'd be perfect, yeah. <laughs> All right, I'll do that. Um, thanks, Nadem. And, you know, thanks for being on the pod as That's well. It's a pleasure. We like yeah. having you. We don't have we don't have many ex-players on this pod. Uh, well, thanks, Nadem. Ah, thank you very much. Thanks, Barry. Thanks, Max. We'll be back at some point soon. Football Weekly was produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Max Sanders. This is The Guardian.